Robert Frost, uh, I, I love poetry. I had an English teacher back when I was growing up that just drilled poetry into our heads. So I love poetry. But Robert Frost wrote a poem called The Road Less Traveled. You may be familiar with it. But there's a line in it that says, I took the one less traveled by, and that made all the difference. And I think that's a perfect illustration of what Psalm 1 illustrates for us on a spiritual level. Uh, I learned a long time ago, it took me a while to put it into practice, but I learned a long time ago, there are only two choices in this life. The world tells you that there are all sorts of choices. It's kind of like a Chinese takeout menu. You, you can take a little from here, you can take a little from there, and whatever works for you works. But when you really look at God's Word, when you look at the things Jesus taught while He was here on earth, you only have two choices. You can choose to follow God, or you can choose to follow the world, which means, and this sounds harsh, this is something people don't like to hear, but if you're not choosing to follow God, then you are following who? You're following the devil. People don't want to hear that message in the day's times. They want to hear a message that says, whatever feels good for you, you do it. There are all sorts of choices. There are all sorts of things you can do. And if it feels good to you, just do it. But Scripture makes it very clear that that is not true at all. Jesus in Matthew 7, verse 13 and 14 says, The road is narrow that leads to salvation. But it's a superhighway leading the other direction. He talks about the door is narrow and only a few find their way in. That used to bother me because I was selfish and I liked to do what I wanted to do. Even though I was raised in church my entire life and I was taught the Bible from a very early age, part of me just liked to do what Lee liked to do, even if it didn't always jive with Scripture. And perhaps some of us in here can relate to that. I can remember being taught these things from the time I was old enough to go to church, which was very early on. And I guess I always knew that there are only two choices, and we were kind of talking about this out in the uh, foyer this morning before Sunday school. The world has changed a lot since I was a little kid. I'm only 50. But the things they teach in school now, the things that my five-year-old grandson are going to be exposed to, are totally foreign to what I grew up with. I grew up going to church at least three times a week. Went to Sunday school, went to church on Sunday morning, went to church on Sunday night, went to prayer meeting on Wednesday. And if there was something else going on that week, we went to church. I can remember being in school and not being taught evolution. That the six days of creation as taught in Genesis, we just believe that because that's what we were taught. And it wasn't until I got older, got into high school and later in college, that I realized the world, and this shouldn't surprise us because Jesus said this was exactly what was going to happen. I think we're starting to see it in our world today. The world does not want to hear the message that we profess to believe. Now, we're not facing persecution like our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who face imprisonment or death. But how many of you in this room can remember a time where it was easier to speak your beliefs as a Christian than it is now? People now, they ridicule us. And like I said, we're not facing physical persecution like our brothers and sisters in other places. But if you say that you believe what this book teaches, people look at you kind of funny, don't they? They call us what? Bigots? They say we're hateful? They say that we don't include people? 
And if people are happy, then why do we care what they do and what they say? And I guess on some level I understand that, but because I'm a Christian and because I believe in heaven and I believe in hell and I believe there's only two choices, when I see people choosing to walk away from God and deliberately choose to go the other direction, it hurts my heart. It didn't used to. I'm ashamed to say that. But if we are truly believers and we truly care, then it should disturb us when we see people willingly walking. And actually, they're not even walking. They're running head first as fast as they can go straight to hell. And when we tell them that they have a choice, but there's only two choices, they just don't want to hear it. Psalm 1 begins, and if you notice, this is set up like a beatitude, the way Jesus taught in Matthew, like the Sermon on the Mount, how blessed, some translations say how happy. And that's how Psalm 1 starts. It says, how happy or how blessed is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. That word blessed in the Hebrew, it's more than just being physically happy. The idea is to find favor with God. To look around the world and realize everything's okay. That's what it means to be blessed. Happy's probably not the greatest word to use there. But how blessed, how fortunate is the person who does not walk or stand or sit. Do you notice that progression there? I want to break those down in just a minute, but I want to finish reading through the psalm first, and then we're going to come back and look at that progression we see there in verse 1. Instead of doing these things, and Psalm 1 is a comparison and contrast between these two choices we have. He said, instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction or his word or his law, and he meditates on it day and night. He's like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. And then the psalmist closes by saying, The Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. What you see here, especially in verse 1, this progression we're going to look at just briefly this morning, is you see going from bad to worse. How many of you ever have woken up in the morning and just says, I'm going to go out and do the worst possible thing I can imagine? Has anyone ever started their day off going, the worst sin imaginable, I'm going to get up and I'm going to do that first thing this morning? I don't see any hands, so I'm not raising my hand. There may be people that are that depraved that they think that way, but I would assume the majority of people don't wake up in the morning thinking, how can I offend God this morning? But every single one of us have sinned, correct? Every single one of us have fallen. And what we see here is a progression of going from bad to worse. It's, it's what the, a guy named Mark Hall, he's the lead singer for a band called Casting Crowns, and I had a chance to talk with him several years ago. And they have a song called Slow Fade, which is based upon this psalm. The idea that when we're not careful, when we're not in God's word, we can go from bad to worse, and it can happen very, very quickly. But let's look at these three words that the psalmist deliberately uses. 
How fortunate, how blessed is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked. I like to use this illustration. I've taught on this psalm before. I've preached on this psalm before. And this is the illustration that makes sense to me and hopefully it makes sense. How many of you like to go window shopping at Christmas? You can raise your hands. I see a lot of ladies' hands in the air and some of the guys are like, yeah, I'll go because, yeah. The places I hate the most, and I do go, I do enjoy some of it. If there's a music store with guitars and things, I like to window shop there. Have you ever been to Gatlinburg where you walk down the streets and there's all these stores and they have the biggest windows? If you notice, these places have huge windows where you can just look right in. And they're one right behind the other. Or if you go to a really huge mall. And the idea here is you're walking along. And you're walking past these windows. And you're walking along. And as long as you keep walking, the temptations are there because there's these huge windows and you can look in. The, the way you avoid from spending all your money is not to go in there in the first place. Just don't go walk down the streets in Gatlinburg. Don't walk through the mall and look through the windows. But the idea is, imagine you're walking along and you're looking in the windows. And as you start looking, you see things in there. And as long as you keep walking, you're okay, right? You don't go in and you don't max out your credit cards. You don't spend all your, your money. You're tempted, but you keep on walking. Now, what happens if you get to whatever store it is that has the stuff that you like? For me, it would be a guitar shop or a music store. If you walk along and all of a sudden you see there, there's something in the window that attracts you, catches your eye, and you stop. And oh boy, now you're in trouble, right? Because instead of just walking along being tempted, being thrown all these things, and that's what our life is in this world, is we're walking along through this world, and the world is just throwing all this stuff at us. The best thing to do is to avoid those things, to not go in those places. But there you are. You're walking along and now all of a sudden you stop because something has captured your attention. And there you're standing and you're looking at it. And notice the progression. How fortunate are you when you're not walking in those places or standing? Once you stand and you stop, the devil's got you. Now, James makes it really clear that the devil doesn't cause us to sin. I've been studying James in my early devotions. James makes it clear that God doesn't cause us to sin. We sin when we're enticed by our own evil desires. Now, the devil will throw stuff out there at you. But once you stop and you start to look and you start to ponder, you're in trouble. And the important thing is, is at that point, all you have to do is what? Just keep walking. Don't go in. But so many times, and you can ask my wife, there was a mall we used to go up to in New York. They had an incredible guitar shop. And every time we would walk by, I could hear her, because she knew what was going to happen. I was going to go in and find something I liked. So we've gone from just walking, being tempted, having all these things thrown at us, to now we've stopped and we're looking and usually the thing I like is all the way in the very back. It's never right there in the front where I can just look in the window and keep going. I've got to walk all through the store. And as I walk through the store, I see even more stuff. But there I am. And now I'm in the midst of all these things. But here's the important thing to remember about that. What do you have to do? You turn around and you walk out and you get out and you keep going. You don't have to stop. 
But then that brings us to the third part of this transition. Notice we've been walking along, all the temptations around us. All of a sudden, something has captured our eye and we've stopped and we're looking at it. We're thinking about it. We're processing. That's what James is talking about. It says when we're enticed by our own evil desires, that's what's going on. And now you've gone in. And the place I like are, I like nice acoustic guitars. And they never put the nice ones out front. There's a little room in the back where you have to go in. And once you go in there and you take one off the wall and you sit down, now you're really in trouble. Because now, now you are actively participating I think we can sum these things, and I'm using a, a humorous illustration. I hope that was humorous, and I pick it on myself. But the idea of this walking through this world and walking in the pathway of sinners, the idea is that we all fall short of the glory of God sometimes, correct? The idea is infrequent ungodliness is in all of our lives. There are times when we just give in to temptation. We're weak, and we give in. It doesn't mean we've been totally given over. We haven't given up. But we're walking along in this world and the things that happen in this world have happened. And the idea of walking is this infrequent ungodliness that all of us are guilty of. Standing, when you stop and you start to take it in, the idea is you've gone from infrequent sinful behavior to habitually practicing sin. And I do want to point out at any point in any of these transitions, you can repent. You can confess that what you're doing is sinful. You can repent, which means to change the way you think about it. And Scripture says that when we confess our sins to God, He is what? He is faithful and He'll forgive us. One of the powers that the Holy Spirit gives us is the power to resist temptation. It says when we resist the devil, you know what He does? He runs, He flees. But this is a danger we all face. Infrequent ungodliness when left unchecked, when we don't confess it and we don't repent, it becomes habitual practice of sin. And it's something we start to do over and over again. But you can still confess it. You can still repent and God will still forgive you. When you really get in trouble and when it really becomes dangerous is this third one. When you sit in the company of mockers, when you look at the original language there, and I, I don't speak Hebrew, I have to trust the scholars and the commentaries and my teachers I had in Bible college. But to sit in the seat of someone means you're putting yourself in a place of authority. And I've never understood that particular part of this verse until recently. To sit in the seat means you are now the one guiding and giving instruction. So do you see how this progression has gone from bad to worse really, really fast? We're all at some point in the first one. We're all walking along in this world, living, trying to be faithful, and the temptations just come at us. We have stopped and stood, and we've been sinful and done things that we shouldn't have done. But if you continue to stand there and you continue to immerse yourself in this type of behavior, in this type of lifestyle, what happens is you slowly harden your heart. And that's a concept we see going back in the book of Exodus when Pharaoh, when Moses went before Pharaoh, it's really interesting. In the beginning of that story, if you remember, Pharaoh hardened his heart against what Moses was saying. That's the way it puts it. Pharaoh hardened his heart and said no. 
But you know what the language says towards the end of the story, what it says? God hardened Pharaoh's heart because he had made a pattern of being sinful. Don't quite understand how that works, but the idea is God doesn't want us to sin. God has given us every tool available at our disposal, including his word, including one another, including the Holy Spirit. But God will let us, if we choose to, he will let us walk away. And Jesus said very few people find the way because it's just so easy to take a different path. Isn't it easier sometimes to do the wrong thing than to do the right? Can we all agree? Sometimes it's easier just to go along with the flow. If we stay involved in these sinful practices and these sinful activities, and I'm leaving that purposely vague because it includes anything that's not lined up with Scripture. I'm not trying to point any one sin out because it covers anything that is displeasing to God. But the longer we practice it, the longer we stay there, what we find is that we have now sit in the seat and we start to negatively influence others and we become the one leading others astray. Now, I still believe it's possible at that point to confess and repent and be forgiven, but it's much, much harder when you are the one leading others astray. Jesus said several times, leaders are judged more careful. When leaders lead children astray, you remember what Jesus said it was better to have done? If you led a little one astray, take a millstone, which I've never seen one used. I've seen them in museums. He said, it'd be better to take a millstone, a huge stone, and tie it around your neck and throw you into the ocean than to lead someone astray. We have to be really, really careful. Because let's just be honest. Sometimes the things that are sinful behaviors, we personally might not think they're sinful. I've got friends who call themselves believers and we would disagree on certain activities and certain practices that whether or not Christians should be involved. And once again, I won't get into specifics this morning. But I would guess that all of us know someone who calls himself a believer that there's a certain activity or a certain thing that they do that they think is perfectly okay that you say, well, that doesn't seem to line up with what Scripture says to me. I'm not going to point out there are certain denominations that say that certain things are okay when Scripture makes it pretty clear that they're not. And they've gone from just being in the world, being affected by the world. They've gone from just standing there and contemplating and pondering these things to being the ones actually leading people astray. But once again, I do believe the Holy Spirit will convict us if we're, if we're praying like we're supposed to be, if we're reading God's Word, and we're getting ready to get to that verse here in just a second, if we're in God's Word, if we're in prayer, and we are with one another encouraging and edifying and lifting one another up, we can confess those sins, and we can repent and walk away, and we can get up out of the seat, we can walk out the store, and we can keep on going, and we can get back on the narrow path. Verse 2 gives you the contrast here. Instead of being like those people, the one who is blessed, the one who is happy, the one who is fortunate, he delights in the Lord's instructions and meditates on it day and night. This is a concept that I'll just be quite honest with. 
would have sounded really weird to me when I was younger. Have you ever woken up? And perhaps some of you do. And if you're at this place, this is absolutely wonderful. You've got a head start. Have you ever woken up and just said, I can't wait to pick up my Bible and read it this morning. I can't wait to see what's in here. Oh, goody. I just spent a week at camp a couple of weeks ago. 12, 13, 14-year-old kids. They weren't necessarily delighting in the Lord's instructions. We had to take your Bibles out. Turn I didn't see any of them just excited, chomping at the bit to get in God's Word. And I confess that I spent a good part of my life the exact same way. The older I get, what I'm starting to understand is the more you read this, I think God does something magical. And maybe magical is not the best word. I just don't know a better one. I find that the more I read God's Word, the more I want to read. When I'm honestly, sincerely reading God's Word for what it is, He puts a hunger and a thirst inside that makes me want more. Now, I'm not necessarily jumping out of bed at 5 o'clock, shouting at the top of my lungs, I can't wait to read my Bible. But as I've gotten older and understood how important it is to stay in the Word, I can't wait to study it. I can't wait to read it. I can't wait to be in Sunday school. Because I see so many of the answers to the questions that we're seeking in this life here in this book. And we should delight. We should be thrilled that God has given us this. Do we realize how blessed we are to have God's words available to us? It's embarrassing how many different English translations of the Bible I have. I can't even count them. And there are people in the world that don't have a single copy of God's word. And they hunger and they thirst for it. And sometimes we just take it for granted. We should delight. We should be thrilled that God has given us His Word to instruct us through this life. And we should meditate on it. What does the psalmist say? Day and night. One psalmist says, Your Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I will hide it in my heart that I will what? Not sin against you. The person who does that in verse 3 says, Like a tree planted beside flowing streams, the roots running deep. The imagery is, is this huge tree with roots that go down as deep as they can go and they're tapping into the very life water that God's Word provides. One of the things Jesus said was He was the living water. And when we drink from it, we'll never go thirsty again. And when we're deeply rooted in God's Word, like a tree planted beside flowing streams of living water, we bear fruit in and out of season. And in Galatians, we see the fruit of the Spirit. And when we're rooted in God's Word and we're listening to it and we're living according to it, we prosper. And instead of being a negative influence, dragging people off to hell, we are light and we are salt and we are sharing the very gospel of Jesus Christ with them. It says, the leaf does not wither, and whatever we do prospers. But there's another choice. The other choice is those who continue to go along with what the world says. It says, the wicked are not like this. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. I didn't grow up on a farm, but I know what chaff is. And when you read the Old Testament and see how they did this, it was really interesting they would take the grains and they would put them out on the threshing floor and they had a fork, basically like a pitchfork. And they would take the whole grain and they would throw it up in the air and they would just keep doing this. And usually it was a level place and as the wind blew, it blew the junk away, the chaff, and the good kernels fell to the ground. 
Jesus uses that illustration over and over again. The wicked are like chaff. They'll be blown away. And then in the Bible, what did they do with the chaff? They swept it up and they burned it. The wicked are like chaff that the wind just blows away. If you're firmly rooted, and we're from Rocky Mount. We remember when Fran and Floyd, those hurricanes came through years and years ago. We had a little small pine tree at the house we lived at, and it was just gone. And it had been there for quite a while. It was a pretty good-sized tree, but the wind just blew it away. But it was amazing. Some of these oak trees that had been there hundreds and hundreds of years were still there. When we were down in Mississippi several years ago with Ides post-Katrina, there were these huge cypress trees that had been there two, three hundred years. And they were the only ones left. You know why? They had roots that were deep. The winds of this life are going to blow by. The storm's going to come. And those of us who are rooted deep in God's Word... We might get beat up. We might lose some branches. But we're going to survive. And the wicked won't. They'll just be blown away. Like the chaff. And verse 5 says, The wicked will not stand in the judgment. When you read the book of Revelation and you see what's in store for us one day, it says, We will stand in the presence of God, the assembly. The Greek word for that is the word ekklesia. It's the same word used for the church. But we will stand as God's holy people in His presence and the wicked will not be there. They will have been blown away. They won't stand up in the judgment. They will be brought down when they stand before Almighty Holy God and they will not be part of the assembly of the righteous. And in verse 6, the psalmist sums it up. God supervises the outcome of our moral choices and people don't want to hear that message. God's not a big bully. He's not sitting up there trying to keep us from having fun. He's an holy, almighty God who loved us so much that He took on flesh and came here and died for us. He's not a party pooper. God demands righteousness because He is righteous. One of the things I hated to hear when I was a kid and one of the things my kids hate to hear as a parent, and it's really funny now watching my grandson because he hates it too, is when... We ask something or want something and the parent looks at us and says, no, and perhaps you've experienced this. What's usually the question after you tell your child no? Why? How many of you use this response? Because I said so. The world does not want to hear this. This is unpopular. Why do we obey God? Well, first of all, because He loved us and He wants us to love Him back. But simply because he said so. He's Almighty God. Who am I to question Almighty God, the creator of this world? And he watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. Just closing this morning, there are only two choices. It doesn't matter how old you are, whether you're five or 50 or 105, there are only two choices no matter what the world tells you. You can choose the narrow path. You can choose the narrow gate. That Jesus says only a few will find it. And that is so sad because John 3.16 says Jesus died for who? Everybody. But unfortunately only a few are going to find it because the other way is just so much easier. And temporarily it feels like it's so much better. But in the end it leads to ruin.